0: Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, your boy on social media at MMALOTN and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive ensuring you leave no stone unturned when you're doing your researching for these upcoming MMA events. We've eclipsed 3,100 fighter profiles, and if there was any weekend to utilize the service, this weekend is the one. Not only do we have UFC Mexico City coming up, but we also have Cage Warriors 166, LFA 177, A1 Combat 18, Fury FC 86, Risen Landmark 8, PFL vs. Bellator Champs, and ACA 171. How are you going to be able to study all of those in a sufficient amount of time? The MMA Fight Archive is right there for you to ensure that you can get direct links to past fights for all of the competitors fighting on those upcoming cards. So make sure you guys check it out. Seven day free trial available. Link for that is in the description below. All right. this week we are covering UFC Mexico City, headlined by a flyweight rematch between former champion Brandon Moreno as he takes on former title challenger Brandon Royval. In the co-main event, we have another rematch and it is going for five rounds as we have Yair Rodriguez going up against Brian Ortega. The interesting thing about both of these matchups is that their first fight both ended via injury. If you guys remember, Brandon Roy Veldt suffered a shoulder injury, as did uh, Brian Ortega. Both, I believe, occurred within the first round or so. Very unfortunate ending to those, but luckily we get those fights, and getting five rounds of both of them will be very intriguing. Will we need all five rounds? We'll see when I break that fight down for you guys or both those fights down. But still, it's great that we have the option of five rounds if that's what we require. Obviously, there's a ton of other Mexican talent filling out the card. A great card overall. 13 fights on tap. And the big storyline going into this one is obviously going to be which fighter prepared for elevation the best because we've seen some very bad performances in the past from fighters that are normally good cardio-wise. But once they fight in uh, Mexico City or if they fight in Denver, Colorado, you normally notice that their cardio starts to take a little bit of a hit. So we'll see which fighters have prepared well for that and which fighters have not. Before we get into the breakdowns, a couple of things we always cover at the top of the show. Let's quickly go over the um, the results of the last UFC event. Uh, we'll start off with the uh, lock of the night play that we had for UFC 298. It came in the form of Danny Barlow, who cashes at minus 190, seemed to be in the driver's seat the entire time against Josh Quinlan, and he was able to get the knockout in the third round there. This guy still has a couple mistakes that he needs to shore up as he continues to take steps up in competition, but... It was a great performance against Quinlan, where he was able to utilize his range, his speed, and then eventually his power to finally get the finish for us. The dog of the night does not come through, and that was in the form of Brendan Hibeto, who we had at plus 125. He closed closer to plus 100 come fight time, and we knew it was going to be a barn burner. It ended up being Ming Yang that was able to get the knockout there in the first round. Decent uh, effort. From our underdog Hibero, but he was unable to get the job done. And again, this was a favorite heavy night. Every favorite one until the main event, where Ilya Tapori obviously knocked out Alexander Volkanovsky, and we had a two and a half unit play on Volkanovsky. Seemed very close in the first round, all three judges gave it to Volkanovsky, but it was ultimately Taporia's ability to crash the pocket, utilizing his winging combinations, and one of those finally landed cleanly on the chin of Volkanovsky, knocking him out. So minus 2.5 units there. We also took a one-unit loss on Jeff Neal plus 200, who lost via split decision. Now... Doesn't matter if it didn't deserve to be a split decision. I agree that um, Ian Machado Gary likely should have won that fight on all judges' scorecards. But the fact that we got enough of an effort out of him to get that plus 200, to make it to a split decision, again, whether it's a right decision or not, that means at least one person in the world believed that he won that fight. Maybe we got some value on the plus 200 there, but regardless, at the end of the day, we have to rip up the ticket, minus one unit on Jeff Neal there. Let's talk about the other losses first before we get into the uh, the wins. Uh, While well, there was only two other losses but one of them being Amanda Lemos and Mackenzie Dern going under two and a half rounds. Lemos almost had her, had her almost had her out of there in the second round. Um, I underrated Lemosh's submission and grappling defense as I thought if this fight did hit the mat, Dern would be able to wrap up a submission. That did not come to fruition. But luckily, we had money on Amanda Lemos straight up as well. So we pretty much, uh, you know, you could call, the, actually wait, we ended up losing about a, a unit, units on the fight overall as we only won one unit on Amanda Lemos and I had 2.03 units on the under two and a half there. The other spot that lost was uh, Anthony Hernandez by submission round three for 0.2 units at plus 1100. That lost but we did manage to get the Anthony Hernandez submission round two prop at plus 800 so all in all we go plus 1.4 units on that spot that fight going down pretty much how I drew it up we knew it was going to be close early with Kopilov showcasing solid takedown defense but Hernandez's ability to eventually get that fight to the ground and sink in that choke it was just a matter of time as long as his durability held up very happy to cash that as well um what else do we got here Talked about Amanda Lemus. Marab Davalashvili, three and a half units at minus 175. He closed closer to minus 300 by fight time. So I was happy to get some solid CLV there. Again, I'm not the best in terms of seeking out line value or CLV just to, you know, if I like a spot enough and I like the odds enough, I'll take a shot on it. And that was the case with Davalashvili. We cast for two, two units there as he puts Henry Suhudo into deep water and drowns him and gets that decision victory. We also had two parlays that hit for us. The first of which was for 1.66 units at minus 166. Rinya Nakamura, Marcos Algerio, Lima I felt like those two p- spots were shoe-ins considering the short-notice nature for Junior Tafa. Big win for DeLima there to go out there, take that last-minute opponent change. Both guys fight the same anyway, but DeLima go out there, goes out there, utilizes his calf kick, and gets to win. And then Nakamura, I was concerned about how he would win the fight but i knew he would win the fight so i wanted to figure out a way to just make another line just a little bit better by throwing him into it and that's what i was able to do in the haji de Lima fight and then lastly we had another parlay that was tied to our ksw event uh one unit on uh miranda maverick who cashed with relative ease andrea lee seemed flustered that entire fight and then i had victoria Suzuka um and they Put together, plus 108, cash for 1.08 units as well. KSW was great in the form of pretty much sweeping the entire card with the only loss on that night coming in the lock of the night play. So not happy about that, but I'm glad that I had enough action on the rest of the card that we pretty much erased the loss from the lock of the night play. It was Vasile Dukar, the guy goes out there and... lays an egg you know he was going up against a guy that had uh no competition in the last six years and was making his mma debut and dukar was unable to get anything off that night but luckily valerio mercia cashes for us plus 125 joseph stumer cashes for us plus 110 matos uh jurassic cashes at minus 125 and casper Kozerzes Kozorzebski, who was the dog of the night, cashes at plus 124 as well. So all in all, uh, plus two and some change units for the weekend. Happy about that. Back in the green after a uh, unfortunate UFC Vegas 86, I believe it was. But again, back in the green. Uh, very happy about that. All right. Um, other things. Oh, the lucky two-step. Absolutely on fire this year, five and zero oh so far through the first five uh, UFC events of the year. Very happy about that. Again, shout out to everybody that's been supporting that segment that drops every Thursday. Uh, I see the views on that going up and up and up as we continue to hit those lucky two steps. Again, if you want to get the lucky two step and lucky trinity before everybody else, I dropped in on Mondays on the Patreon page, the Lock of the Night Patreon page. Check the link in the description below for that. So more often than not, you'll be able to get better odds if you lock it in on Monday rather than Thursday when I drop it for the public, as there probably already is action on the legs that I end up putting in those parlays. So if you want to get early access to those, check out the Lock of the Night Patreon page and then the Locky Trinity cash this past weekend as well. I believe it was plus 247, uh, and we go three and two now on the year for the Locky Trinity. Last thing I want to plug GodzillaWins.com. We go out there, drop two articles a week. Uh, Thursday, sorry, uh, yeah. Wednesday's main event breakdown, Thursday's three best money line spots. We went two and one this past weekend. I'm doing. Pretty decent on the uh three best money line articles. So make sure you guys check that out. Link should be in the description below. Otherwise, just go to GodzillaOnes.com and check those guys out. Not just for MMA, but they cover all the other big sports as well. So make sure you guys check those guys out and support them as well. All right, we got 13 fights to get through for this UFC Mexico City card. So let's get right into it first fight up that we got is going to go down in the featherweight division as we got Eric Silva coming in at plus 225 he goes up against Mohamed Naimov who comes in at minus 305 we'll start off on the Eric Silva side who suffered his first UFC defeat obviously in his UFC debut as he got grinded out by TJ Brown and eventually finished in the third round of that matchup now it's been over a year since we've seen Eric Silva in uh in action which is unfortunate considering he turns 37 in a few months here and he's already 36 he made it to the UFC pretty late we don't know if he's going to be on his decline at this point in time normally he's a guy that goes out there looks to smother his opponents on the ground and find early finishes i believe four out of his five fights that he had prior to the ufc were all first round finishes where he gets these guys to the ground very easily dominates them from on top and more often not finds a submission victory but him getting up there in age him having a sketchy gas tank as well especially finding an elevation i get it he trains there but where was his Cardio against TJ Brown, right? Not even fighting at elevation. Um, so that's a little bit of a concern. But um gotta wonder what has kept him out for so long, possibly an injury, and will he come back looking as dominant as he had before his first uh last loss, or is he gonna gas out once again? His opponent this weekend, Mohamed Naimov, is now two 0 in the UFC, All those both of those wins in the UFC have come with some A little bit of, well, not controversy, but asterisks. The Jamie Malarkey fight, his UFC debut, goes out there, gets outworked for about two and a half minutes before he lands a big bomb and knocks out Jamie Malarkey. His last fight against Nathaniel Wood, uh, did some good work throughout that fight, but, you know, constant grind shots, uh, consequential fence grabs Uh, and the most egregious of them all as Nathaniel Wood in the last 10 seconds is raining down fight ending ground and pound that he was landing very um, precisely and very accurately and with a lot of power Naimov was grabbing the inside of his glove which is illegal to keep him from landing even more damage one of those shots could have put him out but he ends up cheating his way to victory very unfortunate look for him there as he is a talented fighter he's 10 and 2 he's showing that he has an improving wrestling game something that he continues to work on throughout this part of his career he's been training at his homeland of Tajikistan but has been cross-training over there at team elevation as well which we know has a great training staff coaching staff and a lot of good training partners for him as well Uh, big power in his hands, but kind of his flaw in the past has been his own takedown defense and his cardio down the stretch. Now, I was kind of surprised to see this line as wide as it is. You know, Naimov should win here. Naimov should be the one that goes out there and now grapples Eric Silva, but it could happen the other way around. Again, Naimov's takedown defense has been sketchy in the past. (laughs) The cardio is going to be big here as this could go down as being a grapple-heavy fight between both guys. And one minor slip-up, somebody exerting too much energy early could render them useless a little bit later on in this fight. So all in all, for me, it is a pass. I do think Naimov will have the wrestling advantage ever so slightly, which will allow him to enjoy dominant positions and likely win this fight on the scorecards. But no way am I betting Naimov at minus 305, a guy that was back-to-back underdogs. I mean, I get it. He's going up against Eric Silva, who's not that great of a talent either, but I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves with Naimov. I get it. He's an of. So maybe that's why he's getting a lot of action here. He should win this fight and he will be my prediction by decision. Next up, moving over to the flyweight division, we got Victor Altamirano coming in at plus 250. He goes up against Felipe Dos Santos, who comes in at minus 300. Now, Altamirano is coming off of a loss to Tim Elliott last time around, where Elliott was able to land multiple takedowns and just grind out Altamirano. Altamirano is normally a kicker from distance that likes to maintain his range, utilize high volume from that range, but has also shown an ability to take opponents to the ground and grind them out like he did against Vinicius Salvador door but the biggest flaw and red flag in his game is his takedown defense. He is somewhat active off of his back and he makes it awkward for his opponents in terms of trying to settle on top or even try to get any damage off from on top, but he gives up too much time off of his back. He is not working effectively enough to get back to his feet to not make it it look so good optically for his opponent if fights were to go to the judges scorecards just like it did against Tim Elliott. Now he landed his own takedown in the second round against Elliott, had some decent control time there, But before we knew it, he was the one ending up on his back and still trying to find a way to uh, stop the damage that was raining down on him from the veteran Tim Elliott. He still has, uh, you know, some time to show off some improvements. He's 33 years old, but we know as fighters start to get older at this low weight class, things start to go south for them, right? They, They start losing the physical traits that made them so successful at flyweight. And they start to fall off. But nothing really shows me that Altamirano is completely dead and gone at this point in time. The guy is very skilled. Again, good kicking game from distance. BJJ black belt. But he really needs to shore up that takedown defense if he hopes to have any further success in the UFC. His opponent, Felipe Dos Santos, had one of the best um, UFC debuts on short notice, even in a loss. He went up against Manal Kap, uh back at UFC 293, I was uh, believe it was, back in September, and he put on a spirited effort. He lost the first two rounds, but he came on strong in the third round, hitting and landing big on Manal Cap before uh, ultimately the time ran out and cap got his hand raised by decision. Dos Santos trains out of the Diego Lima Shoot the Box team, uh, known mainly for Charles Oliveira, but he showcases a lot of similarities to Oliveira in the fact that he has a solid Muay Thai aggressive striking style but also has a very active guard from his back if he is taken not taken down. This guy's a very impressive very aggressive um, One of the more funner fighters to watch and he's only 23 years old in this matchup specifically I believe that both guys kind of have similar fighting styles in terms of the fact that they like to kick from distance And then if they see an opportunity to take the fight to the ground They can do that or they're active enough from their back I think it's going to be the aggressiveness, though, of Dos Santos that will be the difference maker in this fight. I think Dos Santos should be able to keep Altamirano on the defensive for the most part of this fight, and I wouldn't be surprised if Dos Santos is able to drop him a few times as well, considering the slight speed advantage he should hold in this matchup. Again... Cardio should play a factor in this matchup, but both guys seem to have good cardio to me. We saw Dos Santos in a pretty high paced fight last time around, and Altamirano has gone five rounds in the past. I do like Dos Santos here, though. I don't mind the chalk on him. His aggressiveness will be the key factor in him winning this matchup. I wouldn't mind seeing him try to take this fight to the ground, but either way, output on the feet or even control from top position, I think Dos Santos wins this fight, and I think he wins it on the scorecards. Next up, sticking with the flyaway division, we have UFC newcomer Luis Rodriguez coming in at minus 105. He takes on Dennis Bondaire, who comes in at minus 115. Starting off on the Luis Rodriguez side, who's currently riding a five fight winning streak after he lost his contender series bout back in 2020 to Jerome Rivera. Since that fight, he's gone out there and finished, I believe, three or two out of the five fights that he has currently won. But we know that the level of competition he's been fighting on the regional scene there in Mexico. Usually not up to snuff in terms of what he's going to be going up against in the UFC. This guy seems to have some decent power in his hands. Uh, Sketchy-ish takedown defense game but also a assertive takedown offensive game if that's what he tries to approach it with Uh, but i wonder what his skill level will be uh, now that he's going to be taking on ufc level talent his opponent this weekend dennis bonder is now winless in the ufc through two ufc bouts although his first fight against malcolm gordon was a fight where he lost by injury his last fight against carlos hernandez he was unable to get the fight to the ground and ultimately succumbed to the better striker that was carlos hernandez but the ending of that fight is the thing that i really want to hone in on year if you guys remember carlos hernandez landed a beautiful trip that actually caused his head to hit dennis bonder's head once they hit the mat and that knocked bonder out and from there, Carlos Hernandez doing his job, postured up and landed seven unanswered elbows straight to the head of Dennis Pondere. clearly put him out. And that fight went to a technical decision due to the inadvertent headbutt. But luckily, there was so much of the fight that had already transpired that they were able to give a decision and Hernandez was able to still get his hand raised. But... You got to wonder how much damage bondir suffered there and what the long-lasting effects of that will be. He's been out of action now for, I believe it's eight months. So maybe that's enough time for him to have recovered and try to get back into the gauge and get back to his winning ways. But you got to... There's just too much... Uh, mystery there in terms of what his durability is going to be like i believe he is the best wrestler that luis rodriguez has gone up against and i believe that we'll finally see bonder showcase his wrestling and his ability to control this opponent on the mat however rodriguez has some pans he has some power and i i I just can't help but think that this could be one of those fights where bonder looks great but the beginning of the second round or the beginning of the third round rodriguez lands a big shot that puts dennis bonder clean out so I'm going to have to lean still with Bandaire. I think he has more paths to victory. And I think his wrestling is good enough to nullify Rodriguez. And I don't think that Rodriguez has fought a wrestler and grappler like Bandaire in the past. So I'm going to have to go with Bonaire here. Very low confidence. I'm going to take Bandaire to win this fight by decision. Moving over to the lightweight division, we got Claudio Poyas coming in at plus 175. He goes up against Ferris ZM, who comes in at minus 205. Now, Claudio Poyas suffered his second UFC defeat last time around as he got his shit kicked in. I'm just going to put it out there plainly. He got his shit kicked in by Dan Hooker. Now we know what Poyas' game is, he has a kicking style from distance but it's really his ability to get fights to the mat and get a knee bar. I believe he holds a record right now in the UFC for most knee bar victories and that's his bread and butter like Ronda Rousey or Julius Stoli-Ranko loves snatching up arm bars. He loves snatching up knee bars and he can do it from almost any position, right? He loves rolling for knee bars. If his opponent has his back, he will obviously jump to guard or at least roll to get that knee or that leg and try to crank on it to get the win, just like he did against Clay Guida and Chris Gritzmacher. But on the feet... If his opponent is technically better than him, he's usually a sitting duck in that realm. And that's what he's facing this weekend against Ferris Ziem. Ziem is a talented French kickboxer, and we see him currently on a two-fight winning streak, picking up the biggest win of his career last time around against talented striker Jai Herbert. Ziem is a guy that is continuously getting better and at only 26 years old seems to have a lot of potential left in him. This guy utilizes combinations from distance, utilizes great kicks and good footwork so that he can keep fights in the distance that he requires so that he can get off on his striking. We know that he has a little bit of issues in terms of the grappling when fights hit the mat but he has improved his takedown defense so we should give him that. And that's where my concern in this fight lays for him. If Poeus is somehow successful what snatching onto a knee bar or getting this fight into the grappling realm, how much shit is ZM in? It could be a whole lot of shit. It could be so much shit that i will be pissed at myself for making for taking minus 205 on Phariseum. On the feet, he'll look probably minus 500. Don't get me wrong. But Poyas is a guy that's going to continuously work Until he's not able to work anymore. If you guys remember his fight with Felipe Silva. Most of you guys probably weren't even UFC fans at that time. But Felipe Silva was a nasty kickboxer. Similar to Dan Hooker. And he was beating the shit out of Claudio Poyas. For about two and a half rounds. Until Poyas was able to jump for a knee bar. And he was able to secure it and get the tap. This could be one of those spots. right? Ziem's not much of a power puncher. Last five fights he's not been able to get a knockout. He is a volume puncher. He's accurate with his shots. But I don't know if he's going to be able to knock Poyas out unless it's an accumulation of shots and it's a spot where Poyas has kind of just exhausted his options, start to gas out. Elevation again coming into play here and he ends up just wilting over and we see ZM possibly get a TKO there. But we know Poyas is going to just keep trying and trying and trying. This is a pass for me, but I'm going to take ZM here. I think he plays it safe enough that he doesn't get wrapped up in anything and he goes on to win a decision here. All right, next up, flyweights, a rematch of a fight that went to a no contest last time around. We got Edgar Chayrez coming in at minus 330. He takes on Daniel Lacerda, who comes in at plus 255. We'll start off on the Edgar Chayrez side here again. Well, we can talk about this for both guys. They fought each other last time around a couple months back, and it was a dark choke, I believe, that um, Edgar Chayrez had locked up very deep on Daniel Lacerda. Unfortunately, the referee stop, steps in, stops the fight, and luckily for Lacerda, does not take his fifth loss in a row, but ultimately gets that fight called as a no contest, as the referee had admitted to wrongdoing in that spot and uh, stopped the fight when he shouldn't have. Now, I wish it would get revised to the point, the rules that is, that they would revise the rules enough to the point that if something like this occurs, let them keep fighting. Put them in a neutral position or something like that, let them keep fighting, rather than having them to uh, making them waste several more months of their career trying to come back and have this fight again. It's weird, but is what it is. Uh, Edgar Chira's nasty striker, has a nasty choke game as well, as we've been seeing as of late. His UFC debut was a short notice spot against Tetsuro Taira, in which he got choked out himself, or sorry, he, he had some decent success of his own. But it was just minor mistakes that he was making that cost him that fight. If you guys remember, he was really touching up Tyra on the feet. And then whenever Tyra would go for a takedown, Chiros would latch on to a guillotine and hope that would be enough for him to get the tap or put Tyra out. But that's what all Tyra wanted. Tyra knows what he's doing on the mat. So once the fight hit the mat, he's like, all right, I'm going to let this guy gas his arms out. And then eventually get out of those positions, get to my work on the ground as I'm known to do. So Chiros was close to winning that Tyra, Tyra fight had he not made those small little mistakes. On the flip side for Lacerda, it's been nothing but losses since he made his debut in 2021. But the guy goes out there and he fights his ass off. Usually, the UFC cuts people after three straight losses. For sure, they cut them after four straight losses. They're giving Lacerda a fifth chance here because they respect the fact that this guy goes out on his shield every single time. The CJ Vergara fight. The guy had Vergara nearly defeated and finished in that first round until he gassed himself out trying to finish him, and then Vergara was able to get the finish in the second round. Lucerta is an all-action type of guy, but something that he showcased in his fight against Chayrez was he might take his time here. He might look to utilize his grappling and try to utilize his jiu-jitsu and possibly try to get a finish uh, in a more methodical sense. But he's fighting at elevation here. And I think he just he will eventually revert back to trying to go balls to the wall and try to get the finish. I suspect Chai Rose will be able to take all of that early action from Lacerta, take over, have the better cardio, and eventually find his own finish, probably in the second round. Some something that I'm privy to do is take the under one and a half and the certifieds they have pretty much hit every single time except the Vergara fight and we're getting heavy chalk once again but I think he showed his hand that he wants to slow things down this time so I won't be taking the chalk although this fight could still end up finishing under one and a half rounds I'm still going to take Chiras here and I think he probably gets it done second or third round submission or TKO doesn't matter um, I'll probably just play those, those round props straight up for uh, Chiras as well and hope to cash in on some plus money there all right, sticking with the flyweights, we're going to go with Jesus Aguilar, comes in at plus 120. He goes up against Matias Mendonza, who comes in at minus 140. Seems like it's Mexico versus Brazil for a lot of these fights is what I'm getting at. But uh, we'll start off on the Aguilar side, who had a 17-second knockout victory over Shannon Ross in his last fight. That was his first UFC win, as his UFC debut came on. Uh, came up against Tatsuro Taro, who was able to sink in the choke and get the finish in that fight aguilar solid fighter in the fact that he's short stocky and throws with a ton of power just as we saw in the shannon ross fight but he's capable of going out there and grinding opponents out with his grappling as well he's very strong when he gets a hold of his opponents and drags them to the ground and does great work there he postures up gets some good shots off and usually is able to keep fights on the ground rather than just getting a stalemate and being stood up by the referee. He throws heavy shots in his uh, punches, which allows him to close the distance because he's usually the shorter guy in a lot of his fights. At five foot four with a 62-inch reach, usually the shorter guy. He's definitely the shorter guy in this matchup, but he closes the distance with such power, such explosiveness, and such speed that opponents find it hard to get a beat on how he's going to be approaching them. But he has power, good grappling, uh, and a nasty guillotine as well if opponents look to shoot desperation takedowns on him. His opponent this weekend, Matthias Mendoza uh is on a two-fight losing streak 0-2 since entering the UFC after a beautiful finish on the contender series I believe back in 2021 or 2022 but it was very impressive what he did on the regional scene came in as a 10-0 prospect and then took the fight against Javid Bashra, where he got completely outworked outgrappled, outstruck he had no answer in that matchup. Normally, Mendonca is a guy that goes out there and utilizes his speed, power, and explosiveness with his technical Muay Thai striking, and that's usually allowing him to go out there and finish opponents early or set up club and sub opportunities for him to utilize his aggressive BJJ approach. He tried using his aggressive uh, Jiu Jitsu last time around against Nate Mendes, as he continuously leapt for or dropped for a leg lock or any type of heel hook, but. Maness was very well versed in the defense there and was able to stop all those while damaging the body of Mendonza, slowing him down, and eventually posturing up and TKOing him near the ending of that f- first round. Mendonza is a guy, in my opinion, similar to Lacerda, not as bad as Lacerda in terms of his gas tank, but a guy that clearly slows down in terms of effectiveness as fights start to get into deeper water. Now, in this matchup against Jesus Aguilar, Mendonza would be smart to try to keep this at range utilize his speed and his muay thai to pick apart aguilar from from distance or if he wants to take this fight to the ground if he can get to better dominant positions in terms of getting the back of aguilar or getting full mount getting half guard getting side control those are the spots that would favor him much more than looking to go for leg locks or you know looking for knee bars or anything like that i think aguilar is too well versed to get caught in something like that which is why I actually lean Aguilar here. I think Aguilar has the pace and pressure style to keep Mendoza on the back foot. If he starts digging to the body, he can start to slow Mendoza down and eventually open up a knockout opportunity for him. I believe this is one of those spots where it might look ugly for Aguilar early, but I think Mendoza is going to be unfortunate, or sorry, not, unable to secure a finish early which will open up plenty of finishing opportunities for Aguilar in deeper waters. So I'm going to be targeting Aguilar round two, round three, targeting him straight up as an underdog at plus 120. Yeah, I think this is a great spot for him to go out there and defeat uh, a gassy Matias Mendoza. Alright, moving over to the bantamweight division, we got Christian Quinonez coming in at plus 145 going up against one of my favorite fighters, Hauni Barcelos, who comes in at minus 170. We'll start off on the Quinonez side, who suffered his first UFC defeat last time around, where he got a little bit too overzealous against veteran Ho Kong. That was a fight where Quinonez utilized an aggressive striking approach, hurt Kang on numerous occasions, but Kang was able to bite down on his mouthpiece, counter-effectively hurt uh, Quinones badly and then follow up a submission to get the victory that night. Quinones is, is still young, 27 years old, and I'm sure he will learn a lot from that matchup concerning how close he was to victory and then having it snatched away because he got a little bit too aggressive. Now, if he continues... To develop and he showcases a little bit more discipline this guy could be a star this guy could be very successful especially in this bantamweight division where his striking style is very effective he utilizes a lot of movement a lot of different combinations striking uh, and he has a decent ground game if that's something that he chooses to approach it with but it's really a striking that allows him to get his hand raised he has 22 fights at 27 years old that's tremendous and he has some decent opponents on his record as well his opponent this weekend, Hani Barcelos, was one of the best top prospects, in my opinion, a couple of years back. And even when he was in his 30s, I still considered him a prospect because he just wasn't that active, and the guys he was fighting wasn't really getting him to the rankings where I thought he deserved to be. Now, in 2024, he is one and four in his last five fights. He's a couple of months away from turning 37, probably getting to the close of the end of the road for him. His one win was against Trevin Jones where he was able to utilize his wrestling and his patented kickboxing style to keep uh, Trevin Jones from getting off much of his own success. But then his last two fights got knocked out by Umar Nurmagomedov very badly and then got outworked by Kyler Phillips through the first two rounds uh, and was unable to keep up with him. It was the, the, the constant movement. The speed, the range striking from Phillips that got him the edge over Barcelos that night. And that's where I think that it's going to be tough for Barcelos to get off on much success here against Canones. If Canones shows more discipline than he did in his last matchup, he should be able to keep Barcelos at range. These guys are pretty much the same in terms of their metrics, height and reach, with Barcelos having a 2-inch reach advantage. But I think if Canones utilizes his speed, tries to check some of the leg kicks that are inevitably going to come his way, He should be able to touch up Barcelos pretty good with his speed advantage. Barcelos needs opponents to be content with him in the pocket for him to have success. You know, we saw guys like Victor Henry and Kyler Phillips have success against Barcelos because Barcelos couldn't get them in the pocket to trade with him. Before he could respond or return any of his, his shots, the guys were out of the pocket. You know, they got their one, two, three shots off, and then they were out. Barcelos was just too slow to catch them. Quinones could have that advantage too. And a plus 145 may be worth a little bit of a shot, but I get this queasy feeling in my stomach to take a shot on Quinones and fade my guy, Marcelo's. This might be a fight where I just end up passing it as a whole. If we get some action on Barcelos or we get Quinones at ridiculous numbers, then maybe I'll be forced at that point. But I'm going to predict Quinones here. I think he gets the better shots off, uh, lands some leg kicks from distance, uh, lands some one-twos down the pipe, and then get out of the way before uh, Barcelos is able to counter him. But then it comes down to the wrestling. Barcelos has a a technical wrestling advantage in this matchup, but I think Quinones' youth and his... um, his own improvements in the grappling realm should allow him to um, refrain from getting controlled too much from that top position by Barcelos, but also be able to work back to his feet, stop takedowns, whatever it is. I'm going to give Quinones the edge here. And as a dog, not a bad shot. I just need a little bit better of a price to to part ways with my money to get that shot. But I'm going to go Quinones and Quinones by decision. Moving over to a lightweight banger that we have on tap here, we got Manuel Torres coming in at minus 125 and Chris Duncan coming in at plus 105. Now I taped this fight a couple days back and uh, it was minus 110 both ways, but now with everybody's sights starting to get set on UFC Mexico City with UFC 298 now in our our rearview mirror, it seems like the Torres lovers are coming back out here and showcasing that we believe in his early finishing abilities, and that should be able to come through once again against the guy in Chris Duncan, who we saw get flatlined by Vyacheslav Borchev a couple years back. Now, Torres is a notorious first round finisher. This guy goes out there, lands heavy strikes. And the nasty elbow that he landed against Nicholas Mota last time around mwah, beautiful, 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 beautiful. One of the best highlights of 2023. But this guy is flawed. This guy is absolutely flawed. He overthrows so many times he overthrows to the point that he puts himself off balance he overthrows so much that he starts to slow down but luckily for him the guys that he's been finishing uh, had a little bit of um, durability issues frank camacho nicholas mota the colton ungland fight was a huge asterisk considering that england uh, had felt that he was poked in the eye and he was complaining about it the referee didn't stop the fight and torres just took advantage of it and put him out cleanly There's a lot of mistakes that Torres makes, but his knockout power allows him to get away with it early in fights. But we know, we saw it with Joe Pfeiffer a couple weeks back. At a certain point, they're eventually going to fight somebody that is technically better than them. Fighters that have a better control of their cardio, a better ability to stop and not get knocked out, and then eventually turn the tables and have success of their own. Chris Duncan is a guy that has been showing crazy improvements uh since uh you know joining the ufc since joining american top team and yes he has been knocked out in the past but you know he took some big shots from a big puncher like you know and had his way with him omar morales not a huge puncher but ate some shots from him got his hand raised in that matchup we're seeing an immaturity in chris duncan's game it's his ability to mix his striking which is his bread and butter and hiding takedown attempts behind those strikes. And that's going to be key for him here. He's going to have to wear on Manuel Torres, who will slow down. I absolutely believe by the fourth minute of this fight, if Torres goes out there and fights how he normally does, which is swinging for the rafters and trying to knock his head, uh, his opponent's head into orbit, he will slow down. And if Duncan is smart enough, utilizes good footwork, utilizes the clinch, Utilizes takedowns. He should be able to slow down Torres and eventually get his own finish. I like Duncan here. I know there's going to be more action coming in on uh, Torres throughout the week. So I'm just going to sit back and see how high we can get that Chris Duncan number and then take a shot on him. I'll be taking his round two and round three props. I'll obviously be taking him straight up as well. But Duncan is the better fighter. By far, the better fighter. You take the better fighter at all times. Knockouts are going to happen. It's inevitable. It's MMA. They're fighting with four-ounce gloves. It's going to happen. But we know Duncan is the better fighter here. As long as he can stay conscious early, he should be able to take over and get the finish in the second or third round. All right, moving over to the strawweight division, we got heavy favorite Yasmin Yadagui coming in at minus 475. She takes on Sam Hughes, who comes in at plus 375. Now we'll start off on the Yadogui side who suffered her first professional defeat last time around where she got knocked out by Denise Gomez in about 20 seconds. It was a very unfortunate loss for her. This was a fighter that had a perfect record up until that point. She normally utilizes her distance striking style combinations, good kicker, um, you know, not the biggest power, but she does a good job in terms of just keeping opponents at bay with the consistency and when she throws the strikes, but when she faced a power puncher like Gomez, she went down. You know, say what you want about the stoppage. Yaragui got hit. She got put out. Not not a good look. She's talented. She's young still, 24 years old. She definitely still has a lot uh, of improvements to be making and, and continues to get better to what, or get closer to what her potential is. And a lot of people, including myself, believe she has a very high potential. It's good to see her training with the the, the camp that she's with the Diego Lopez's, the Jesus Aguilar's, those guys over there. Um, I look forward to seeing how she looks to bounce back after suffering such a rough defeat, especially with that being her first defeat. Now, she's going up against Sam Hughes, is coming off an upset victory over Jacqueline Amarim last time around, where she was able to survive the early onslaught of Amarim with the BJJ black belt in the first round. But in the second and third round, she was able to stop the takedowns and get off on her own strikes. Now, Sam Hughes is a fighter, I believe, since the... I'm going to say Piera Rodriguez fight or even the Elise Reed fight. This is a fighter that joined forces with Fortis MMA who was one of the top coaches that we've seen in the game in saved Sayud. And that's the perfect camp for a fighter like Hughes to go with. She has the physical capabilities. She has the cardio. She has the grind. Now to match it up with a coach that is able to devise a solid game plan for her. This is a winnable fight is what I'm trying to get at. She's going to have a two-inch height advantage uh, she'll be the bigger fighter here, and we know what her style is. She wants to put fighters through the ringer. She wants to grind on them. She wants to break them down and eventually finish them late. And I think we're seeing those improvements from her now. Now that she has a couple of training camps under the Fortis MMA banner... This is a fight that she can go out there and pull off another big upside like she did in her last fight. Yargui is the technically better fighter here, but what good is technical striking and that advantage if you're unable to stay at distance where you find yourself most comfortable? Hughes will be pressured, in my opinion, to try to get this fight to the ground or get it up against the cage where Yargui is uncomfortable and then get this fight to the ground where she could have success. I get it, Yargui is good, but minus 475 good? N- no, not at all. She was losing the first round against Estela Nunes before Nunes blowed her or blew her wad just as she normally does, and then got finished in the second round. Yasmin Lusin was still very young, and was just making her UFC debut, and we know she's turning into a solid, uh, uh, solid prospect herself. Uh, but that was a bad stylistic match for her. Sam Hughes is capable of making this a fight. Plus three seventy-five. Give me Sam Page. I think she grinds this fight out. I think she gets the decision victory. Hate on me on all you want in the comment section below. But to take a minus 475 fighter who is relatively unproven against a grinder like Sam Hughes is nonsensical in my opinion. I'm taking a shot on Sam Hughes here. Maybe even sprinkling her to win by decision. But I think she wins this fight regardless all right moving on to the next fight in the bantamweight division we got Raul Rosas Jr coming in at minus 260 going up against Ricky Tercios who comes in at plus 220 now Rosas Jr last time around was able to bounce back from the first loss of his career by picking up a dominant sub one minute uh sub one minute uh, victory over Terrence Mitchell that was a fight that he quickly got to the ground and smashed his opponent on top for a TKO victory we know what this 19 year old is good at this kid is a high-level jiu-jitsu player. He gets opponents to the ground, he smothers them, opens up submission opportunities or TKO opportunities, and gets the win. He faced his toughest test of the day two fights ago in Christian Rodriguez, who is a guy that is a potential champion moving forward if he can get his weight cutting under, under, uh, under control. Um, so that's not a bad loss by any means. But Raul Rosas Jr. is a guy that was known for what he was able to do in the gym as a 17-year-old against high-level fighters. I get it. You know, what you do in the training room is not the results that matter when it really comes down to it when you get locked in the octagon in live action. But this guy is still capable of high-level performances. Now, he's going up against Ricky Tercios, who's coming off of a very close split decision victory over Kevin Natividad last time around. Tercios is one of the most wild, unorthodox And unknown fighters, right? Like, this guy's very active, high activity, high output, um, a lot of empty output as well. You know, he might um, throw 200-plus significant strikes but only land 11% of them like he did against Ayman Zahabi. Uh, In the grappling room, he's a BJJ black belt, does a great job with his scrambles. Not often do you find him getting grinded down in certain positions. We saw Natividad do good work in that second round, but, you know, for how long was he able to establish that top position before Tercios was able to reverse it or get back to his feet or even get on top like he was able to do in certain spots there? But in this fight, I think Rosas has the better pure jiu-jitsu or at least better pure grappling his ability to maintain position will be the difference maker here minus 260 is still too wide for me to take on a 19 year old who's going up against a 30 year old who has 15 fights of legitimate experience against solid opponents but what i'm looking at here is probably the over two and a half which currently sits at minus 125 i think that this will be a back and forth grappling matchup and as long as the the elevation doesn't play too highly on either side here with one guy eventually gassing out and giving up a submission, or as long as Rosas, you know, he doesn't gas too much going into deep waters here against somebody as active as Tercios. I see this fight going to the scorecards, and you're giving me near pick for that. So I'm going to lean Rosas here to win by decision, but the over two and a half around minus 125, no worse than minus 130, is likely what I'll end up taking a shot on. But I do like Rosas Jr. here, and I think he gets the better positions, better control time, and ends up getting his hand raised on the scorecards. But minus 260 is just a little bit too wide for me. All right, next up, we got another solid prospect here, 24-year-old Daniel Zellhuber, Coming in at minus 270 in this lightweight matchup, going up against Francisco Prado, who comes in at 21 years old as a plus 230 underdog. We'll start off on the Huber side, who currently has a two-fight winning streak going last time around, sinking in an anaconda choke against Christos Yagos. Now, that fight did not come out with, come without some adversity, as Yagos was able to land a big shot in that first round that wobbled. Huber, didn't drop him wobbled him and Huber was able to quickly get his feet his feet back under him but was unable to secure that round luckily for him in the second round we could sense that Yagos was starting to slow down and he was able to start picking him apart with a range advantage and distance advantage that he held and eventually sinking in a choke after Yagos went for a desperation takedown Huber is improving tremendously under the guidance of the extreme couture guys we can see his improvements in his fight IQ starting to rise every single time out He was a little bit too gun shy in his UFC debut against Trey Ogden and he fell behind on the scorecards because of that. But now that we're seeing assert himself a little bit more against a veteran like Lando Venata and then against uh, somebody that put him in trouble early in their fight against Christos Siagos, you can tell that this guy is improving at an extreme rate. He's very good in terms of keeping opponents at bay, utilizing his reach, utilizing his kicks up the middle and accentuating that six foot one height that he has and that 77 inch reach that he has as well. He should be able to keep um, his opponents at bay as that's usually when he has his most success and uh, yeah this kid's very talented very promising as well his opponent this weekend Francisco Prado is coming off of a knockout victory over Atman Azaitar. Um and that was a fight where they pretty much threw down we saw azitar have a little bit of success we saw Prado obviously eventually land that uh, spinning back elbow that dropped otman and we saw um sorry I was just trying to one of my graphics was wrong here, so I was just trying to make sure that it was fixed before I give you guys some false information. But uh, Prado was able to drop a Zaitar at the ending of that first round and then push her up with some big ground and pound to eventually get that TKO victory. This kid's young, 21 years old, You know, immersing himself with the goat shed down there in Florida, um lost his UFC debut against Jamie Malarkey, showcasing that if he's unable to put opponents away early, things could get sticky for him down the stretch as he doesn't have much else other than, you know, the power punching when he's able to get opponents to exchange with him inside the pocket. His wrestling slowly improving but still not to the level that I think it's going to have an immediate effect in his upcoming matchups and I think that's going to be the difference maker here against Al Huber I think Zal Huber will do a good enough job in terms of maintaining his footwork and his speed and his range Uh, he'll have a eight inch reach advantage in this matchup. If he continues to stick that jab out there and that kick out there, it should continue to make Prado whiff at air and that will start to slow the youngster down and that will allow Zell Huber to start picking up the pace, start landing more combinations with a little bit more confidence and maybe even uh, ends up allowing him to get the knockout victory here. But I think it's going to be important that he plays it very safe in the early going. Play it safe, but also make Prado work in the sense of, you know, throw the jab out there, throw the kick out there let Prado throw, and then return almost immediately. Um, Prado is very much reliant on that early finish in this matchup. I I don't think that he has the process to close the pocket as effectively as other fighters have been able to. Um, and again, Yagos was able to hurt Zauber. Don't get me wrong. Prado could do that as well. But if Zauber has continued to improve his footwork, continue to improve his fight IQ, his striking defense, he should be fine here. This is a spot where I... I feel kind of comfortable on the chalky spot on Zell Huber. Survive that first round if you you know if you get too queasy, maybe take a live entry on Zell Huber going into round two. But I feel like this is a spot he should be able to go out there, touch up Prado, and eventually win this fight on the scorecards. All right, Coleman event time reminder: this one is a five rounder as well. We got Yair Rodriguez coming in at minus one eighty five, going up against Brian Ortega, who comes in at plus one sixty. Now, the first time these guys met was in July of 2022, and it was uh, a fight where we saw Rodriguez keep the fight standing for the most part, stop the initial takedowns of Brian Ortega, and absolutely touch him up on the feet. Uh, Ortega landed a couple jabs that actually did manage to get some damage on Rodriguez's face, but it was a late takedown that Ortega landed that got him caught in an armbar attempt from uh, Yair Rodriguez, which ultimately... Uh, dislocated the shoulder of Ortega and ultimately put Ortega on the, on the shelf uh, and has yet to compete since the last matchup against Rodriguez. In the meantime, Rodriguez was able to get an interim title shot against Josh Emmett, with which he came through with and won in the second round with a submission. And then he tried unifying the titles against uh, Alexander Volkanovsky in July and came up short there. Now he has some unfinished business with Brian Ortega, as I'm sure he didn't want that victory by injury and he wants something a little bit more clear. Now, Rodriguez is one of those guys that has had a rollercoaster run since he originally burst onto the UFC scene as a fan favorite. People loved his flashy style, his explosive striking, the power that he brought to the table, his flying, spinning shit. It was a, a tremendous. But after he lost to Frankie Edgar, things started to go downhill for him, right? There was those numerous bookings that he had against the beat, Magomed Sheripov that didn't come to fruition. A lot of people were blaming him. The UFC even cut him because of his refusal to fight a certain fighter. They eventually brought him back. But I think since the Max Holloway fight, people have gained another respect for him or more respect for him. He comes out there and he throws down. He is no longer a fighter that will be broken. He's a fighter that goes out there and tries to get the knockout and tries to win every moment he can. The Chan Sung Jung fight, perfect example. He's probably down on the scorecards in that fight and pulls off a tremendous back elbow knockout at the buzzer and gets a knockout victory. Rodriguez is a very solid fighter and improving too. We know he's a striker, but his wrestling is improving and his aggressive jiu-jitsu game off of his back is improving as we saw in the Ortega fight and as we saw in the Josh Emmett fight. Now Ortega. We know what he is good at and what he's not so good at. His striking seemed to have been much improved when he fought Chan sung Jung, But from what I had heard was after uh, Brian Ortega rocked Chan sung Jung badly, I believe, in the first or second round, Jung never got his feet back under him. Jung was never in there mentally. He was asking, you know, is it the second round coming up when they're going into the fifth round? Things like that. So I'll chalk that up to you know, we'll still give Ortega the credit for landing that in the first place and being able to maintain his success throughout the rest of that fight just off of his striking. But as we saw in the Volkanovski fight, as we saw in the Rodriguez fight, he's still a sitting duck against technically better strikers. And that's that could end up being the case here against Rodriguez once again. Now, Ortega did land the takedown at the ending of that, that first round, which is, you know, what ended up causing the finishing sequence there. So who knows how it looks moving forward? Will Ortega, will that... That submission uh, that Rodriguez threw up, would, would that have created a get-up opportunity for Rodriguez to just get back to his handiwork, or would that have given up into a position that Ortega could latch on to and pull off a submission? That's the big question here. But I feel from what we've seen, we've seen good enough uh, takedown defense from Rodriguez that um, if he's able to keep this fight at range, Utilizes distance striking, he should be able to find that finish over Ortega here. I don't think that this is a fight that's going to require those extra two rounds. I think that this is a fight where we'll see Rodriguez get that second or third round victory. It's going to be important that he keeps this fight standing. I get it, his jiu-jitsu off his back is very much improved, but Ortega is deadly with his BJJ. But I feel confident enough that at a minus 185 clip, Rodriguez keeps this fight upright and eventually gets that finish in the second or third round. All right, main event time, fly away to rematch. We got Brandon Moreno coming in at minus 255, going up against Brandon Royval, who comes in at plus 215. Now, these guys met back in 2020, where Brandon Moreno uh, was able to get the victory after Brandon Royval ultimately dislocated his shoulder in the dying seconds of that first round and ultimately had to get TKO'd because of it. Now, I think Moreno showed his hand in that fight in the four minutes that it did take place, that he wanted to take a grapple heavy approach to try to subdue Roy Val. Obviously, Moreno has improved his striking tremendously, but given the chaotic nature in which Brandon Roy Val throws, I think Moreno felt a little bit more comfortable on the mat where he could control the very jittery style of Roy Val. Moreno obviously lost his title in his last matchup against Alexandre Pantoja, as Pantoja was able to secure a couple of few key moments with his control and getting the back of Moreno. But I think Moreno is still capable of championship-level fights, championship-level performances, and getting that championship back once again. And I think it starts this weekend with Brandon Royval. Moreno, like I said, very much improved his striking. His jiu-jitsu game is very much up there as well. Um, His takedowns, high level as well. And he's going up against Roy Val, who's, again, a very fun fighter, one of my favorite flyweights of all time, just because of how chaotic in nature he is when he steps in the cage. He throws such wild techniques, from spinning stuff to flying stuff to knees up the middle, um, unorthodox striking, nothing that really follows the technical playbook of anything, but still is successful enough that he can go out there and win a, you know, go on a three-fight winning streak, turn himself a title shot like he did last time around. Unfortunately, grappling and pure jiu-jitsu Ended up being the downfall of Brandon Royval, as I expected to be once again with Brandon Moreno. Royval will try to knock out Moreno here. He'll try to catch him and some sort of flying submission, but I think Moreno is too technical and too disciplined to get caught in anything like that. I think we'll see Moreno once again utilize his grappling approach, try to get these dominant positions, maybe try to get the back of Royval, similar to what Pantoja was able to do, and just ride him out. I think Royval may end up making some mistakes down the stretch. Which Moreno might be able to take advantage of. Pantoja, he was life or death just trying to hold on to position. But we know he has a bit of a cardio issue. Moreno can go a hard five rounds if he needs to. And I think if Royval tries to make these, uh, you know, unorthodox movements late in the matchup, Moreno is a guy that could latch onto a submission and make him pay for it. Um,. I like Moreno here, man. I, I think he's just technically too much for Roy Royval's Vell. Roy Val's chaotic nature might make him live to pull off a Hail Mary knockout or something like that, but I think that we'll see Moreno keep him static, keep him on the mat, keep him in a spot that he's unable to get off on his wackiness and unorthodox nature. So I'm going to go with Moreno here. I think he wins it on the scorecards. I might sprinkle the submission prop if it's good enough, but I think for the most part, we see this go five rounds, and I think a lot of it has to do with Moreno just controlling this fight and getting the better of Roy Val with a lot of control time. And there we go Brandon Moreno by decision, possibly submission. There you guys go. 13 fights broken down for you guys in just under an hour appreciate it if you guys watch the entire thing through remember we got a ton of other great content coming this week i will be doing a mma law cast episode for pfl versus bellator so stay tuned for that later in the week uh and then i got three regional shows that i'll be breaking down on the patreon page uh aca Cage Warriors, and Elfay, all of those will be on the Patreon in written form, so make sure if you guys want action on those, you guys can check that out in the link in the description below. Otherwise, I'll see you guys again tomorrow for the top three Lock of the Night plays uh, or candidates Wednesday, top three Dog of the Night candidates, Thursday, Quick Picks, plus Locky Trinity. Again, if you want early access to the Locky Trinity, which is 5-0 and on the year so far, check the link in the description below for the Lock of the Night page where I drop it on Mondays and then Friday uh, three best prop bets. A ton of content coming this, way, uh, this week for you guys, folks. I'm going to be working my ass off. Hopefully, you guys enjoy it. Hopefully, you guys appreciate it. Drop a like and subscribe. Drop a comment below just for the heck of it. Appreciate you guys. Love you guys. And I'll see you guys again tomorrow. Peace. thing.